Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for coming along, and thank you to the Academy for uh, inviting me, and to the uh, people from the locality of Fianna, and hopefully we might get a chance to do a talk down there at some stage as well. Um, again, it's fitting that this talk on the bookshine is taking place in this splendid room where we're surrounded on all sides, including the basement, by manuscripts and books. And again, this room in a way can be considered as a book shrine because it does contain many sacred and significant texts. And again, the only difference is book shrines are sealed, you can't get access, but the manuscripts and the texts here are actually available. St. Colin's Shrine is one of the rare medieval Irish reliquaries that can be dated exactly by an inscription and has no later additions or refurbishments. That is, it is one new construction. Unfortunately, the devastating consequences of the fire in St. Mel's Cathedral, Longford, in 2009 has now sullied the original pristine appearance of the shrine, but it has survived relatively intact. This talk will provide a brief introduction of the, discussing the iconography, the inscription, the style, the techniques of the shrine. But before I consider St. Colin's um, shrine in detail, I'll just define a book shrine and just briefly run through the surviving examples from Ireland. So there, a book shrine can be defined as a decorative box or container, usually of sealed construction, in which a manuscript is permanently stored for safekeeping or veneration. And here we go. This is the area. This is the Loch Canale book shrine. As Siobhan mentioned, this, this is my major project, which has been, uh, well, I won't go into too much, but hopefully it will be finished soon. Parts of this are actually on display in the treasury in Kildare Street. It dates probably to the early 9th century and it was discovered in 1986 in Loch Canale, County Longford. The next one, this is the Sushkel Malasha. This dates to the early 11th century and again there are 15th century editions on this. The manuscript does not survive but there is accounts for it in the early 19th century. This is the shrine of the Stowe Missal. Uh, again, this dates by inscription to 1027 to 33. And there, again, there are later medieval editions from the 15th and the 16th centuries. And the actual manuscript actually survives here in the academy. And again, the more renowned, this is the shrine of the Cog of St. Columba. And again, the shrine dates to the mid to late 11th century and with later medieval editions. And you can see that a lot of the fronts of these shrines, they, uh, they were re refurbished and reconstructed throughout the centuries, but they had no qualms about actually removing the original front of the shrine and reusing it. So, most of the shrines, what does survive, are actually only the sides and the ends. Very, except for the Sushkale and maybe Loch Canale, the original fronts don't always survive. Again, the Mishok, this dates to, um, again, a late 11th century, probably Columban reliquary, and there are, it, the later medieval editions are dated to 1534. This is the shrine of the Book of Dima, uh, the manuscript which is in Trinity College, um, currently under um, study. The shrine itself dates to around the mid-12th century, again with 15th and 16th century editions. Uh, the shrine of the, that's actually slightly off the, um, the, that's the shrine of the Book of Mulling. The shrine is in the National Museum. The book is actually, in the manuscript is in Trinity College, and this dates to 1402, but it may well be earlier. And finally, this is St. Colin's Shrine, which dates to 1536, and you can see it um, was in quite good condition. So just to give you a brief uh, introduction to what the shrine is actually, it's made from an oak box and onto this are nailed um, decorative plaques which are die stamped and then it's gilt brass. There's also very um, 
quite elaborate little silver frames which are engraved with foliage ornament and there's a few human figures enmeshed in there as well and there are glass settings set around the front. This is the sides. Again, it's a die stamped panel. These all look very, very similar because they just use a repeating device to give you this foliage, which are just a form of rosettes. So these are the short sides. This is one long side and the other, which is a near repetition. And again, this is the reverse, which again, even though it's 16th century, it does copy the uh, openwork plaques, which are found on the earlier shrines. And this is just a shrine. An oblique view to show you how it was constructed. I don't know if you can see there's these kind of corner clamps. So in a way, this could not be opened. There was no hinged panel. There was no sliding. So whatever went into this was completely sealed up. And that's the usual method with the remainder of the book shrines. So just to um, move on. The most disastrous event in the history of the shrine took place in the recent past when the shrine was extensively damaged in the inferno which swept through St. Mel's Cathedral Longford on Christmas Day 2009. And again, I don't know whether you've seen this view before, but it was where in the central aisle there you can see these floppy large copy, copper, which are the actual domes of the uh, the roof, and they've just completely caved in and melted over the floor. So it was just, there were, even though the first side, it doesn't look too bad when you're actually on the inside, it was a complete um, fiasco. And, it was a, and also this here, you can see the columns, which are uh, very badly cracked from the heat and the uh, Again, they all had to be replaced. It was a very good documentary. You may have seen on RTE about the full reconstruction of the cathedral. So unfortunately, I don't have a slide at the end, but um, that's the way it was. Um, the shrine is housed in the Diocesan Museum on the first floor of the cathedral, which was directly over the sacristy, which is where the fire is thought to have started and where it was probably at its most intense. All the floors collapsed, thus encapsulating the artifacts and material from the museum in rubble and ash. When the site was considered safe enough to access, an excavation team drawn from the Irish Antiquities and Conservation Divisions of the National Museum investigated the site and recovered any surviving artefacts. The operation was supervised by Dr. Andy Halpin and work commenced on the site on Tuesday the 12th of January 2010 and lasted for a week. Conditions were extremely difficult as you can see from this slide as it compacted debris and rubble up to three meters in depth had to be excavated by hand in freezing temperatures, including accumulations of snow. The shrine was discovered on the first day by Dr. Andy Halpin and myself. And although covered, you can see here, in a mass of um, ashy concretions, um, it had actually survived. Uh, there was some loss and there was some impact damage. It appears that the shrine had survived due to a number of fortuitous circumstances. It appears that when the exhibition case where it was displayed, was crushed by masonry from the collapsing floors. The shrine was propelled into an alcove in the sub-basement beneath the sacristy. Can you just see the little um, aperture there on beneath the ladder? So what happened was really, um, yeah, the alcove floor had a section of carpet which was saturated from a leaking pipe. And this pipe continued to leak throughout the fire, thus maintaining the carpet and the shrine in a wet condition. So in a way, these sheltered and waterlogged conditions saved the shrine from complete destruction. Indeed, some may see this survival as another miraculous uh, event with, associated with St. Colleen. Um, we only realised how fortunate these circumstances were when, six days later, only two small sections of St. Mel's crozier were recovered. And again, this is the original exhibition case in St. Mel's. And you can see there is the shrine in one corner, but there is the crozier adjacent uh, running the length of the case. Again, that's another detail of what happened with the shrine. And this is the crozier. 
and unfortunately that's all that's left of the crozier. So um, although the crozier was adjacent, um, and both are constructed from a wooden core with metal sheets, but the crozier was consumed by fire and crushed. Um, and again, another significant loss to the nation was the 12th century Club Nari, the Bellafina. And again, this survived, except all that survived from this was the iron clamp. This is a drawing. It was completely, um, well, there's no trace of the bell. And there's lots of, maybe there was probably around 300 objects in the museum ranging from modern material to the significant objects such as St. Mel's Crozier and the Book Shrine and the Bellafina. But maybe only 120 survived, and some of them um, in very, very bad condition. So unfortunately, the bell didn't, but the shrine did. I will not dwell on the conservation of the shrine, even though that is my profession, because this has recently been published by a colleague of mine, um, Kasia uh, Berniak. Um, and she was, uh, I suppose, contracted by St. Mel's to actually work on the shrine while it was housed in our museum. So you can see here, she's really just taking off the corrosion products, the charring, the debris, just gently under a microscope using a bamboo splint and um, some soft hand tools. And again, you can see where she's beginning to reveal some of the original decoration, which still survives, even though the gilding is completely gone. The gilding is the actual very thin layer of gold. Okay, so just um, and here, what we did do as well when it was in conservation. This is the sorry, this is a, an image of the shrine after uh, conservation. And again, you can still see the detail, but you can see some of the, the losses of the binding strips and the clamps as well. And while it was in conservation, we did take uh, an X-ray just to see whether, even though it was damaged, it was still intact. We couldn't get access to the interior, but the X-ray doesn't seem to show there's nothing but in the shrine as far as we can see anyway, so it is empty. So um, yeah, just back to the history. The shrine remained, um, I'm kind of stepping back in time now, the shrine remained in the vicinity of Fianna, County Leitrim, in the care of the co-arbs until it was acquired by the Ar Archbishop of Cashel, Dr. Croke, who donated to St. Patrick's Diocesan Seminary, Thurles, County Tipperary, in 1886. Father Michael Kearney, president of St. Mel's College from 1944 to 56, assembled a collection of ecclesiastical artifacts from various institutions. And among these was St. Colin's Shrine, which then formed the nucleus of the Diocesan Museum, which was established in 1974. So the next thing we'll talk about is the inscription on the shrine. The inscription, which is in Irish, commences on the front of the shrine and the lower right corner, where it's placed upside down and then proceeds clockwise. And then it continues on the reverse on the upper left corner. On the front, the letters are engraved onto a narrow silver strip which is highlighted in yellow. And in the yellow, you can see the way the silver, the letters, and then behind it is a black background. That's in yellow, which is a substance. It's actually silver kind of shavings, which is then mixed with sulfur and heated up to about 800 degrees. That forms a paste, which is then cooled down and ground like a pigment. And then it's, it's set into the silver to kind of offset the M. Um, so you can, the letters actually stand out. You can see even they're quite vivid. Um, again, this is another row, but there's a, there's the little piece you see in the middle there is actually the arms are just the upper torso of the crucifixion figure, but it did allow for that to be placed because there is a blank area behind that. And again, the inscription on the back, it's not in silver, it's just directly engraved into the brass, but the letter forms are exactly the same, so the same scribe and carried out both. The following reading is based on a close examination of the script of the shrine. Now, I won't go through this because there's contractions and expansions, and there's also breaks where it goes into the actual, um, where the, the, it breaks into the different sides of the shrine. 
But basically it says, pray for the man who covered the shrine of Colleen, that is Brian, son of Owen O'Rourke, and Margaret, daughter of O'Brien. And the year of our Lord was 1536, Hail Mary. These names can be confirmed from the annals and historical sources. Brian is Brian Ballock O'Rourke, son of the Lord of West Breffney, Owen, and his wife, Margaret. According to the Annals of Connacht, Margaret died in 1513, Owen in 1528. These same Annals note that Brian, son of Owen, was proclaimed O'Rourke in 1536. So this would have been a fitting occasion to commission a shrine and at the same time commemorate his parents and ask for blessing. So the next thing we move on to is actually the iconography. It's really what do these figures on the shrine mean? What are they there for? The iconography is confined to the front of the shrine and comprises the die-stamped figural plaques, which we can see here, the crucifix figure, and the marginal figures on the frame of the upper left panel, which you will see in a few minutes. Um, the male figures were originally considered to represent the 12 apostles, but Dr. Colm Horahan proposed that these three repeated figures represent St. Martin, Lawrence, and Stephen, who are referred to in the life of St. Colleen when he brought back relics of these particular saints back with him from Rome and had them enshrined. These upright figures are all bearded, wearing ecclesiastical vestments and placed under an architectural canopy. On the left, St. Stephen holds a common attribute to all three, a small book. Um, Lawrence is placed in the center holding a small cross shaft, if you can see it there, and Martin on the right grasps a crozier. There are errors in the attributes and the portraiture. St. Martin was always depicted wearing a mitre. Um, Lawrence would have had different vestments and Stephen never had a beard. But besides this, it probably is a, a kind of an idealized version anyway. There's a little bit of latitude there. There is little comparative material as this triad of saints do not appear as a group elsewhere in late medieval Irish art. But if anyone knows, I would be very interested. Um, ecclesiastics and saints appear on numerous shrines and reliquaries throughout the medieval period in Ireland. And another example is the Donagh Argot Shrine. Again, the core of the shrine dates probably to the 9th century AD, but the additions on the front are date from the mid 14th century. And again, you can see these saints here, but these are much more easier to identify. The details are much clearer. On the first one we see there is St. James with his sheaves of wheat. In the center is St. Peter with the keys, and then on the other side is St. Paul, who is bald and with a sword. And again, on the side of the same shrine, the Dominic Argot is John the Baptist, who is holding a disc with the Agnes Dei. And I don't know if you can see behind him, likely engraved into the metal, is uh, Salome holding a platter with the head of John the Baptist. So we move on to these um, engraved figures, and these surround the, the only the figures are only in one of these um, die stamped plaques on the front. Um, there are four full-length figures on each side of the frame in various poses. Now, they are difficult to see. Colm Horahan, followed by Ray Gillespie, proposed that the two uppermost figures represent Margaret O'Brien um, and either her husband Owen or owner work or son Brian, which are all named in the inscription on the shrine. Both are crowned, given a prominent position, and depicted praying. However, only the figure on the left is actually depicted praying. The figure on the right is showing in an act of blessing, if you can see that. The figure on the right is showing holding a sword over a crowned nude figure who is crouched or praying or in an act of supplication. With one exception, the larger figures below have no attributes and are shown dressed in bulky shawls and may be representations of the Uruk dynasty. Since the saints in the stamp panels do not conform to rigid iconographical canon, these engraved figures may not be entirely secular. Furthermore, the gender is uncertain. The crowned figure with the sword 
which is referred to as male, but there is a long strand of hair on either side, visible beneath the crown, which may indicate a female figure. So if so, it may be intended to be a representation of St. Catherine of Alexandria, believe it or not. Here she is again on the donut, but she has got her defining attribute of the wheel. But there is an earlier image of the same saint, which is found on the um, Cornelius O'D. Crozier in the Hunt Museum, which dates from 1418. And we can see here, I don't know, but you can see where this crowned figure is holding a sword and has an, um, another figure beneath her feet. So, um, Catherine, yeah. So what she's doing, she's holding, she, the person beneath her, uh, the legend is the actual, the, is the Emperor Maxentius, Maxentius, sorry. The image is engraved into the silver and the sketchy effect is similar in style to St. Collian figures. Another attribute of St. Catherine is a palm frond, which is a symbol of martyrdom and maybe what the figure beneath her grasps. This is the figure on this side. It's quite difficult to see. Let me see if I can... With the eye of fate, there is something there. So I don't know, there is what may well be a palm front. Um, so there's also a 17th century image of St. Catherine by Claudio Coelho, who displays all of these attributes, the palm front, sword, and the figure beneath her with her um, feet on. Therefore, these two images on the silver frame may be a conflation representing St. Catherine's moral and spiritual victory over Maxentius. Furthermore, Professor Gillespie has informed me that the legend of St. Catherine was recorded by the Mapartland scribes of Leitrim, who were patronised by the McGoverns of West Cavern, West Cavern. So this may have been a popular tale in the region of Breffney in the 16th century. So just move on to the, uh, the crucifix figure. And again, this is placed um, in the relative same position as that on the shrine of the Mishuk. And it may be a deliberate attempt to emulate this earlier reliquary by two years. Applied crucifix figures of the 14th to 15th century are also found, for example, on the shrine of St. Patrick's Tooth at the Fiacal Porig, um, the Donegh Argyll, which we've seen before, and also on the Corp Nave. But just one thing to note is that they're all quite heavily worn and abraded from the faithful coming up and rubbing and touching them and um, possibly kissing them as well. Um, so this shrine is directly associated with St. Colin as he is named in the inscription and although the saints on the front are not identified, the proposal that they represent St. Martin, Lawrence and Stephen is convincing as the relics are listed in the life of the saint. The uppermost image may be a representation of St. Catherine of Alexandria with the remnant of the engraved marginal figures representing members of the O'Rourke dynasty. So what I'll go on to now is just some of the techniques used on the shrine. The majority of the ornaments in the shrine, notably the saints on the front and the rosette panels on the sides, were executed by die stamping. This was a cheap and efficient method of producing a series of repeating direct decorative panels, and this technique appears on many of the late medieval phases of Irish shrines. The ornament consists of animal, foliage, and figurative decoration. For example, on the shrine of the Cahawk, you can see there's a little frieze here, and you can see those little dragons or wyverns, or there's a mixture of beasts. Some are fabulous, some are naturalistic. So what we have here, this is a little die from Duro County Leash, and you can see that they're engraved, um, I suppose, patterns of animals um, in distinct panels, and they're actually engraved directly into the metal in a negative form. So how you would you produce these panels, what you would do is you'd lay a sheet of silver over the die, 
Then on top of that, again, you'd lay a sheet or a slab, or a, not a slab, but a, quite a thick sheet of lead. You then hammer the lead into the back of the die so that the actual impressions are taken up on the silver sheet. And then you take the lead off and you peel off your silver, uh, your silver strip. And then in turn, that would be gilded. So we can see the way the, these similar animals. Uh, again, on the left, you can see there's a little rabbit. And this is, a, again, a panel from the Dominic Argot Shrine. It's a leaping rabbit or hare. And again, another panel from the Donuk shows another one of these animals, which is the one on the, the right. So it was, uh, again, it, quite inefficient. You could make these dies as long as you wanted or as short as you wanted, and you could cut them up into various sizes and shapes. So again, a few minor um, components are missing from the shrine. There are two binding strips from the base and a number of silver loops used for attaching the binding clamps. The loss and damage must most likely occurred in the 19th century as a result of prizing open the shrine with some force to gain access to the interior. Where is present on the raised areas such as the heads and the corners, we can see them there. These are the human heads in the corners of the clamps. And these figures are usually abraded from contact with the faithful in the act of, as I say, touching and rubbing them. Um, yeah, there are strong indications that the St. Collian figures may have been derived or copied from a shrine similar in decoration and iconography to the 11th to 12th century shrine known as the Brack Moog. And I can just see these figures here. I don't know if you notice similarities, but the heads with the swept back hair, I know they're both quite warm, but the ones in the Brack are much more detailed, but they seem to have the same general head shape and hairstyles. Um, these enigmatic figures on the brack display luxuriant hair and beards, elaborate garments with cross staffs, swords, flails, and books as attributes. And this is just a, you can see a full, um, there's a full um, sorry, image of them there. Um, the meandering foliate tendrils, we can see here, this little, it's a kind of beside the, beside the saints on the dice stand plank, you have this little, I'll come to these later, but it's a little foliate tendril. But you also find these, I know it's harder to see on the side of the brack. So what I'm trying to say is maybe they had seen an 11th, or they would have been aware of an 11th century, 12th century shrine, something like the brack, and they would have kind of copied this in a, a cheaper version or a, a simpler version way of actually uh, reproducing it on the die. So, and again, the openwork plaques on the back, as I said, are very, very similar to those found on the shrine of the cock and also the Mishuk itself. So, I just go back. Sorry. A few minor, yeah, a few minor components are missing. The loss and damage, as I say, most likely occurred in the 19th century as a result of prizing open the shrine with some force to gain access to the interior, where it is present on the heads and the corners. But the crucifix figure itself is in remarkable condition, as we can see there. And we saw the other crucifixes on the other shrines, which are heavily worn. So I don't know why this is in such good condition. But it is actually primary to the shrine because, as I say, there is a gap left exactly for this on the letters behind in the inscription. And again, when the shrine was damaged and was in the far, the crucifix um, figure was loose and we could see behind it, but it definitely is. And it's the same metal. It has been analysed as the remainder of the metal on the shrine. So it's a slight enigma. Um, the design and assembly of the shrine is not of the highest standard. A wedge-shaped piece you can see here. A wedge-shaped piece of plain brass has been inserted along the vertical frame on the lower right panel to offset misalignment. It's really they just left the gap. They hadn't made it, they hadn't worked out the dimension, so they had to plug the gap with a little piece of uh, metal. The composition of the front is not symmetrical, as there's no die-stamped strip placed between the upper inscription and the frames containing the ecclesiastics. 
So what we have here up here is just a narrow band filled with hatching where beneath us on the bottom, there's actually a die stamped plank. So again, they left that short. It's not entirely symmetrical. Lack of attention to detail is also apparent where retaining pins are placed without consideration for the underlying design. You can see here the figure where, uh, as I say, may well be St. Catherine, but there's a, a nail straight through her face. Now, this is an, it's an original nail. It's a fixing nail. They're all in the corners, but whoever assembled the shrine together had no conception of what was maybe there. So it's not something we would do. Um, it is likely that just one craftsman was involved in the making of the shrine, as it is not very technically ambitious or complex. While the overuse of die stamp panels has led to repetition and a lack of vibrancy, the silver frames are of a much higher standard, and the craftsman has deliberately varied the ornament on each frame. We can see here, you can see the very, um, it's a very distinct foliate motif surrounding the die stamp panel, and it's a, that's in grey freehand into the silver, which is quite difficult to do, but a very um, accomplished silversmith should be able to do this. Again, the foliate motif is present, as I showed you, in between the ecclesiastics, and it's also found, uh, again, in a more elaborate form in one of the other frames. So in a way, this seems to be like a signature motif of the artist. He seems to be using it actually everywhere. Again, there's a little, this is a part of the inscribed strips with the, uh, the names. And again, above that is a little scroll as well, which again is by the same hand. And again, this might be more difficult to see, but on the corner clamps engraved into the brass, there is again a very, very similar tendril motif. So he's just using the same motif throughout all the elements of the shrine. Um, the engraved figures, um, are superbly executed within the economy of line and horizontal elements of the frame display, as I said, this, uh, this um, tendril motif. Other components can be directly linked by motifs and technique. The geometric openwork, if you can see, this is the central setting from the front of the shrine. And you can see, I don't know, it's not a very good picture, but around the edge of that, there's little kind of um, perforated, um, I suppose, mountings with uh, triangles in between them. And again, we find exact, this is another reason why the crucifix figure is probably primary, because you can see the crown of thorns there. They've used the same tool to perforate, and they've used the same engraving tool with the same hatching and decoration. And again, this is one of the other settings where, so all it's really showing is the same hand that was used to use for most of the, for all nearly the components on the shrine. And again, this is just going back to the inscribed um, strips. But again, the letter forms are the same on the reverse. But as I said, it is more difficult to engrave brass. It is harder and less forgiving than silver. But the same hand carried out this work as the letter forms are the same. Therefore, the craftsman was also described and motifs by the same hand, but utilizing different techniques are found on the front, the corner clamps, the reverse, the crucifix figure, and the settings on the front. So now to um, digress slightly. Um, this well-known image, I'm not going to call it an icon because that word is overused, first appeared in America in 1963 on t-shirts and rapidly spread. But I think we may well have an earlier version here, if you want to believe me. Just see what you think. Um, this there, that to me, this is foliage, okay? But if you actually look at it carefully, it looks like um, a pair of scrunched up eyes with a nose and a smiling mouth beneath. And that's repeated all through there. So I, I think it is the artist with a sense of humor. Um, and so, therefore, I would see them. As, and it is, a, you do get classical uh, heads and mesh and foliage. So, but I think it's nice to see that and it hasn't been well spotted before. But I think uh, hopefully you'll agree that it is actually a little smiling human face. Okay, as there is no craftsman recorded in the inscription, it makes it more difficult to propose a location. But it is likely that the work was carried out in the northwest region within the ambit of a work influence. 
The craftsman and the patron who commissioned the work, Brian O'Rourke, must have been aware of the O'Donnell reliquary, the Mishok, which was refurbished two years earlier in 1534. And this is actually the work of Raymond Gillespie because he has proposed this theory that the um, St. Colleen Shrine is a copy of the Mishok in some ways. And again, this is another O'Donnell reliquary, the Cock, again, which is not as similar, but I hadn't had time to go into, but there's actually little tiny motifs on the sides of the shrine of the Cog, which are also found on St. Colleen Shrine. So there's this kind of um, intertwining of influences. So the Mishuk bears a striking resemblance in size, shape, and layout to the ornament of St. Colleen Shrine, and has a crucifix figure located in the same relative position. The craftsman may have wished to emulate and surpass the Mishuk by fabricating a more opulent and technically proficient shrine. Indeed, he may have carried out commissions for the O'Donnells, or at least been familiar with the patronage, as I said, the Shrine of the Cork. Recent, recent research has shown that due to political motives, the O'Donnells may have had some involvement in the formulation of the 1535 edition of the Book of Fianna. Now, I know we're celebrating the 1516 edition, but there was also an edition um, commissioned in 1535 by Brian O'Rourke. Conversely, the Beha Column Killer, a manuscript which was commissioned by Manus O'Donnell and written in Lifford, County Donegal in 1532, cites verse from the 1516 version of the Book of Fianna in three instances. Murugaso Melconora, the scribe and scholar who formulated and edited both texts of the Book of Fianna, was probably requested to provide source material for the Beha Column Killer. Therefore, since Murugas had a direct connections with both the O'Rourke's and the O'Donnell's, the craftsman involved in the manufacture of the shrine could also forge artistic links with the O'Donnells. The craftsman may have seen the Mishuk, the Beha Kalamkila, and even the shrine of the Kog. So what we have here, I hope you can see it, is a front piece from the Beha Kalamkila, uh, again 1532, which was commissioned by Manus O'Donnell. Um, this rare and striking full-page portrait depicts St. Kalamkila in full ecclesiastical garb, and what is significant is the presence of these distinctive motifs shared with St. Colleen's Shrine. Again, if you can see this ubiquitous lobed tendril, and even though it appears on the shrine a lot, it's not that common actually in late medieval 16th century art. Um, and again, just to compare it back to St. Colleen's. The crossman, yeah, and there also, which can be seen in the enclosing arch, and also on here, the offrey of the chosen, but that's the large, the ecclesiastical vestment that St. Columba is shown wearing. Again, along the centre on the bands of that, there's also a, a loved tendril. Um, furthermore, the border of the arch and the fringe of his cloak are decorated with a step fret pattern seen on the corner clamps. I don't know if you can see these are little kind of step, little key, and like a little T pattern. It's um, So it's just a little decorative border. Um, but again, that decorative border is found in silver and yellow all through St. Colleen Shrine. So, um, and again, on either side of um, the head of St. Columba, there is also a, a rose or a foliage. Again, we have that. Not saying, not saying there's a direct connection in these two, but you do get similar form of ornament. So although these motifs are not that unusual, it is noteworthy to find the combination of these three specific motifs on a single image and book shrine commissioned only four years apart and located in the same region. The craftsman may have been aware of the front piece and decided to incorporate some of the decorative details into his commission. Marital links also existed with the O'Donnells. Margaret O'Brien, who was commemorated on the shrine's inscription, had a sister who was married into the O'Donnells. But more pertinent is the fact that Brian O'Rourke's second wife, Grania, whom he married sometime after 1527, was a sister of Manus O'Donnell, who commissioned the Colin Killer. 
It can be concluded that the Mishuk Shrine and the Beha portrait provided direct inspiration for elements of the layout, design, and decoration on St. Colin's Shrine. The influence also stemmed from 12th century metalwork such as the Brack Moog. Again, to recap on some of the motives for Brian O'Rourke commissioning in the shrine, it was fabricated within a year of the later version of the Book of Fina, so as to forge a strong link between the legend, relics, and life of the saints. The saints portrayed on the shrine can be directly linked to hagiographical sources and episodes in the Book of Fina and their purported relics contained within. Brian O'Rourke was cognizant of the increase of O'Donnell's power and influence in South Ulster and North Connacht, and he felt compelled to compete by commissioning reliquaries superior to theirs. I may also speculate that his 1535 edition of the life of St. Colin may have been produced to compete with the Beha Colm Killa, but this requires further research. Since St. Colin's shrine could not have accommodated either the 1516 or 1535 editions of the Book of Fianna because they are too large, should it be described as a book shrine? As a book shrine, it would have elevated the prestige and status of the associated Book of Fianna, even if it was never contained within the shrine. The Book of Fianna's main purpose was as propaganda, listing the rights, privileges and dues to be paid to the church, and as such it would have been available for reference and consultation and not sealed in the shrine. However, its use as a book shrine could not be completely dismissed. When Murgas O'Meconnor was transcribing and editing the original Book of Colleen to create a new version, he explained that one of the reasons was, and to quote, because the vellum in which Colleen's old book was before this time had grown old and decayed. One of the primary functions of a book shrine was to preserve the condition and sanctity of the manuscript by sealing it within the reliquary. Since Colleen's old book was in such a decayed state and associated with the saints, it would have merited enshrinement along with the additional relics of the martyrs which Colleen supposedly brought back with him from Rome, thus establishing a more potent reliquary. Therefore, there is a possibility that the present shrine may have contained the original book. When the Reverend Dennis Murphy examined the shrine in 1892, it appeared to be in a damaged state as he was able to describe the interior which was evoked, but he never made any reference to any contents. So to conclude, St. Colin's Shrine has always been associated with Fianna County Limerick and remained in that locality until the late 19th century. The inscription naming the saint, the patron Brian O'Rourke and his parents enable us to suggest a number of religious and political motives for commissioning the shrine. It is inextricably linked with the Book of Fianna and the accounts of the book are reflected in the iconography of the panels on the front of the shrine. Analysis of the techniques and style indicate that the shrine was fabricated by a single craftsman with certain features displaying excellent craftsmanship and skill but also with careless work in some places. Regrettably, the craftsman is not named in the inscription, but he may have originated or been trained in a workshop in the northwest region, as there are direct stylistic links with O'Donnell regal artifacts such as the Mishok Shrine and the Bear Column Killer. The question of whether St. Colin's Shrine can be defined as a book shrine still remains open, as it was not large enough to accommodate either version of the Book of Fianna, but may have contained the old Book of Colleen. Although damaged and charred, St. Colleen's Shrine has now been conserved and is hoped that this treasure will now be displayed in a suitable and safe environment for future generations to appreciate. And just as regards my title, yeah, the shrine uh, in Irish medieval art, it is a significant contribution to medieval art. We can observe from the de detailed examination that the work was created by one craftsman. It also demonstrates that not all shrines and reliquaries are made to a high standard as seen with the repetitive panels and designs throughout the shrine. However, the engraved figures and foliage on the shrine with their religious and political meaning are striking and the artist also had a sense of humour. So I'll just finish off with the, um, this is the way the shrine was up until the fire. 
This was its state, as you saw, during the fur, and this is the shrine in its present condition. So hopefully it may end up back in the uh, new museum of St. Mel's Cathedral at some stage. Thank you.